0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is John Odermatt, your host here on Felony Friday. And I want to try something new. Um, don't have an ad for you here or anything like that. But I have a request. So I want to try something with Apple Podcast Reviews. Um, they're very important in podcasts. And they help you get more attention and eyeballs on your podcast. You get in the, uh, you know, you rank up in the categories, all that stuff. So I would like people to give five-star reviews. So I'm going to reward people who give us five star reviews, review the podcast, say something nice, and then if after you do that, if you drop either a topic you'd like me to talk about, a question, and ask me anything, you know, you can ask me a random question and I will address it on the show if it's if it's appropriate. But you can drop that after your five star rating and your review, put what you want to talk about there on the show I will talk about it, and um, and it helps the show. It helps you influence the show. It's a uh, it's a win win. So please consider doing that. Make sure even if you listen on you know Spotify or Overcast or whatever, do it on Apple Podcast. They have the most control right now, so do it there, and uh, we'll see what happens. All right, thank you very much.
1: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John
0: Odermatt. Felons, friends, freedom lovers, people who are ready to to turn the policing and criminal justice system on its head. Welcome to Felony Friday, guys. So great to have you here. And you know, this week, today's episode, I have a a great guest that I'm going to introduce in a little bit. And, you know, I want you guys to listen to the interview and check it out. We'll be talking about bail and the situation right now with COVID and just the mess that that is has become and is going to be a nightmare going forward. Um, but before I get into that, you know, I, I really have to address, you know, what's going on in this country right now, because as someone who's been doing a podcast about the criminal justice system, about police brutality, about the need to completely break this system and build it up again uh, in a completely new way, um, I have to address what's going on right now. With the uh, the George Floyd murder, murder in the streets at the hands of police, the knee on the neck uh, that killed uh, George Floyd, I-, I need to address what's going on. And I don't want to really spend a lot of time talking about the protests or the riots or the difference between protests and riots. And I don't want to spend time talking about people who are, you know, white people who are signaling, virtue signaling on Instagram or Facebook, saying they get it now and they understand that they've been racist this whole time, but they're not racist, but they got to make sure everyone knows they're not racist, because if everyone doesn't know they're not racist, then people, you know, might not you know, buy stuff off of them or hire them for a job or whatever. So... That stuff's just crazy, okay? I, I'm, I'm a white person. I understand that. I understand that I'm not black. That's very, very apparent. Um, that doesn't mean that I can't have views on the criminal justice system, and that doesn't mean I don't understand uh, the racism, the systematic racism that is present in the criminal justice system today. And I want to kind of step through uh, some changes that I would recommend to be made. And I made a post on Facebook that is just going insane right now, which uh, with six things that I recommend as ways to uh, de escalate the current ridiculous. I mean, I say ridiculous not in a way that I mean, I'm glad people are upset, but seeing businesses getting looted and all this stuff, that's that's ridiculous. I'm sorry, it's ridiculous. The ridiculous situation in the streets where there's a huge public safety issue, Need de escalate that. And at the same time, we need to rebuild, start to rebuild the criminal justice system. And I could go into a, you know, a long rant about everything that's wrong, everything we need to change, and I don't want to do that. I want to give you six things that we can change. Six things that Congress could go tomorrow, write this in an easy, simple bill, outline it, vote on it, pass it to the Senate, vote on it, pass it, and give it to President Trump. Six things that could be done. And I'm not going to get into the specifics of, you know, they need to put this language in the bill. They'll freaking figure it out. All right. So number one, demilitarize the police. We have police uh, in local communities across the United States driving around in tanks, wearing heavy armor. I'm looking like they are in Afghanistan or Iraq patrolling the streets. And honestly, it's probably safer for the Iraqi and Afghani civilian interacting with the military over there because there's different um, rules of engagement over in foreign countries that are actually more strict than the rules of engagement over here. So let's cut that off. There's been, uh, you know, different uh, legislation put in place that created that pipeline. That is, uh, it's just a, it's a manufacturing uh, pipeline that sends all this new equipment overseas and it constantly goes over. They use it, they send it back, they send it back to the local, local police departments and local police departments are overrun with this equipment. And it's terrible on many, many different levels, but more than anything else, I mean, we want peace in the streets, Right. And when you come in with all this heavy equipment, heavy artillery, um, you're not getting peace. Uh, the police are going for, uh, they, they want submission. They want you to see the the flexes, they flex their muscles, and they want you to submit to them. You know, that, that's not a healthy relationship. That wouldn't be a healthy relationship between partners. That wouldn't be a healthy relationship in any situation. And it's certainly not a healthy rela- relationship between the people who are supposed to be uh, protecting you and... Uh, and the citizens. So demilitize the uh, police tomorrow. Let's do it. Number two, decriminalize all drugs. Now, there's a couple of different things here. Of course, decriminalizing drugs, you know, most important thing is the health and well-being of the citizens out there. With drugs being currently prohibited, and especially when you're talking about heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, um, drugs like that, There's so much uncertainty in the dose, you know, nobody knows what they're getting. And I'm not condoning or saying people should be using these drugs, but we need to start treating um, drug addiction, drug abuse as a health issue, not a criminal issue. And I'm talking about decriminalizing across the board. I, you know, I'm not even saying like just decriminalize users, I'm saying decriminalize distribution, everything. And, you know, the market will regulate itself. We'll figure out the best way to regulate this market. And if you're afraid you're going to start doing heroin tomorrow, you know, maybe you need to look at the things that are making you want to do heroin in your life. It limits police interaction police interaction with individuals in a consensual transaction. And that's important on many different levels, but it's most especially important in the black communities where the war on drugs has by far been the most damaging, the most damaging government initiative to the black community out of anything. It has torn apart households. It's put fathers and mothers in jail. It's had children being raised without fathers and mothers. And it has kids growing up with uh, because of it being on the black market, because of it of there, there being this uh, limited distribution, uh, it attracts you know people to the market to sell drugs because there is more uh, there's more money that can be made, and when something is prohibited, that raises the uh, the 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 perceived value of it above other things. And so it's, it attracts you know, some of the, the smartest, the brightest people, the entrepreneurs, the people who are ready to shake things up and make changes. It attracts those people into uh, you know, selling drugs, which I, I don't think that's the most rewarding, fulfilling, or the most uh, value-added job that somebody can have, most value-added business that someone can contribute, but it, it attracts people into that line of work. And that needs to stop. Okay, moving on. Number three. End occupational licensing. And some people ask some questions about this, like, well, why do you want to end occupational licensing? That doesn't seem like a big deal. It is. It, it, it's a huge deal. And people don't understand what's going on with police in this country around occupational licensing. So when I talk about occupational licensing, I'm talking about people needing to go out there and they need a license to be a barber, to do nails, to do eyebrows, do all these different things. You want to do, uh, you know, be a handyman, you got to have a license. And police have set up stings to deliberately set people up to arrest them for doing consensual work that people have maybe brought them into, you know, obviously police, it's a sting operation. So th- they're calling them in and say, so for example, there, there was something recently, I, I believe in Florida, where there was a sting operation and police officers were calling in these uh, handymen and, you know, the handymen were coming to, the, to these uh, locations and doing the jobs they were licensed for And the police were encouraging them, hey, you know, you want to do this electrical work over here? Do you want to come, you know, kind of rewire this circuit for me? And they'll get them to to start rewiring the circuit. Bam, arrested, jail. So, and that's not the only reason to end occupational licensing. It's great. Get the police out of it. Less interaction with the public. That's not the job of peace officers to be regulating consensual transaction between individuals. But also, it opens up the marketplace. It lets people. It eases the. Uh, it eases the friction. People can go in and out of different jobs. They can try different things. They can build their talent stack. They can learn different things. Let's get rid of occupational licensing. Let insurance regulate it. Let the market regulate it. Let, uh, you know, different rating services and uh, we have, you know, Yelp and everything else you can rate businesses. Let that regulate all of it. We have everything in place. We don't need the state running their revenue generating scams over us and occupational licensing. Number four, ban no knock raids. Duncan Lemp. I could go on and on about a list of, you know, different people. Did a show a few weeks ago with Duncan Lemp in, uh, A guy in Maryland, police came in, middle of the night, got a warrant uh, for a no-knock raid a few hours earlier, came in, and there's been nothing coming out about the case. Nobody knows what actually happened, but witnesses inside the house, his parents, his pregnant girlfriend, say that he was shot inside his bed. This stuff has happened throughout the country, black, white, every different race. It's terrible. Uh, The risk is so far exceeding any potential reward there's no reason to do no-knock raids. Ban no-knock raids. Next up, end qualified immunity. And this is so important, guys. And a lot of people don't know about qualified immunity. They don't know why it's so important that that it is, it is ended. But it creates an uneven playing field. It gives protection to police officers. It's it's not justifiable. And quite frankly, it's, it's very dangerous. So actually, the Supreme Court supposedly is going to be looking at Qualified immunity again. It's getting a fresh look after uh, George Floyd's death. And, you know, some things, just a couple examples, qualified immunity, how this works. This this stuff is crazy. So recent case in Tennessee, a man suspected of burglary was mauled by a police dog that was released by officers after he was sitting on the ground with his hands raised in surrender. He can't sue. He can't do anything. He's mauled by a dog. Another one in Georgia. Mother, whose 10-year-old son was inadvertently shot in the leg by a deputy pursuing uh, into the family's yard. Shot a 10-year-old son. Can't sue. Can't do anything. The officer's just doing his job. He's just doing his job. So you're left with no recourse. Um, another one, Idaho woman. Gave police permission and keys to search her home and wants to sue the officer who instead, what they did is they spent hours bombarding the home. Apparently there was a fugitive holed up in there and they destroyed the house, destroyed the property, Guess what? Can't sue, just doing my job, can't do anything. It's ridiculous. You're putting different tiers of citizens, you're putting police officers doing their job above every other citizen. It's ridiculous and qualified immunity. Lastly, six. This is very simple. I'm just gonna say this. So, right now, when uh, if, if George Floyd or you know Eric Garner's family or these these different individuals who have been brutalized by the police, if they wanted to sue. You know the police officers, and uh, and to get money in civil suit, that comes from the taxpayers. It doesn't. Right now, it doesn't come from the police officer. Doesn't come from the police union. It doesn't come from the pension fund. That needs to change. We need that any of these lawsuits filed against the police need to come from either insurance the police have ahead of time and yeah they got to go out to get, they got to get insured. So in order for them to get insured, they got to change the way that they do business or it's got to come out of their pension funds and I guarantee you if they start taking money out of police pension funds to pay for police brutality, for police murdering citizens for all this stuff and it's incredible how many citizens are killed by police every year. in 2019 it was over a thousand. It was over a thousand people. Who were who were killed by the police? So if they change that, you're going to see a whole different landscape of the way police interact with uh, with civilians. You'll actually see them being peace officers in de-escalating situations. So I I had to uh, you know I, I wanted to lay that out for you guys. You know it was something that it's really uh, something that people have latched onto, and I hope that. You know, are libertarians out there running for office? I hope. Heck, I hope Democrats and Republicans running for office take up uh, take up these six points, and uh, we get these you know passed into into legislation and uh, and into law. Because guys, we need to start somewhere. And I see the the anger and the frustration on the streets, and I don't even I can't understand it fully because I'm not you know I I haven't suffered in the same way that that, that others have. But you know the the virtue signaling and the, the posts I see on Facebook about oh I, I get it now I get it and then and they post you know they pose for a picture that they're they're so sad now that they, they get it and that you know this whole system's been destroying people's lives they, they don't get it they don't get it. Listen to a hundred episodes of Felony Friday people who have been to jail but go back to, to the past three episodes I've done before this one of felony Friday you have, Two black men who did twenty six years in prison for for totally nonviolent crimes, totally nonviolent drug drug crimes, twenty six years in prison, ripped away from their families, fathers ripped away from their children, and then last week's episode with uh, with Lynn Ulbricht, the mother of Ross Ulbricht, a guy who's serving life in prison for building a freaking website. The system's broken, guys. The system's broken, and I could go on a rant and tell you the whole. Let's tear the whole thing down. And that's honestly how I, I do feel we probably should. But let's start with these six things. Let's build uh, let's build a coalition. Left, right, center, libertarian, liberal, conservative. Let's build a coalition around these six things. I'll post it on the show notes page. Check it out, lionsofliberty.com/slash ff one thirty-one. Let's get to my interview with Ken Good. My guest today on Felony Friday is Ken Good. Ken graduated from Hardin-Simmons University in 1982 with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He received his Master of Education degree in 1986 from Tarlington State University. And in 1998, he received his law degree from Texas Tech School of Law, where he was a member of the Texas Tech Law Review. Mr. Good has argued cases before the Supreme Court of Texas Texas Courts of Criminal Appeals, along with numerous court appeals, including the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He's the author of Goods on Bail, a practice guide created for bail industry professionals. In addition, he has written numerous articles on the subject of bail reform, including what a successful bail reform looks like. Uh, he's worked closely with lawmakers and law enforcement on bail matters and will be providing input on key decisions or for key decision makers as new policies are developed moving forward. Uh, Mr. Good offers his uh, perspective on uh, those in charge of public safety, uh, what they should consider before making these decisions uh, affecting not only the persons charged with the crime, but of course, society as a whole. Ken, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on Felony Friday. That's a very interesting title. I love that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know the title just kind of created itself, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as, as happens with podcasts. But uh, yeah, this is a show, of course, focused on criminal justice reform, and um, I've asked you to come on to speak specifically to uh, to bail reform and how coronavirus has impacted that, with the jails being cleared out, and we'll talk about all that stuff, and we'll dig into all the different nuances and how public safety is impacted and you know, violent versus nonviolent offenders, how, that, how you see that playing out in the future with regards to bail and people being held in jails. But before we go down that road, so my, so my audience can get to know you a little better and your background, if you could start off by sharing, first of all, what got you interested in the criminal justice system in the legal field and uh, going to law school and, and going down this road?
1: Well, honestly, you know, my parents were both public school teachers, and they taught us the importance of an education. And my mom and dad were always encouragers. My mom and I used to stay up on Sunday nights. Uh, you would watch the news, and then at that time, from 10.30 to 10.35, they would have the sports extra. And then from 10.35 until 11.35, uh, they would show an episode of Perry Mason. So my mom and I, for several years, would be the only ones in our house up at from 1035 to 1135 on Sunday nights, on which would be a school night, and we would watch Perry Mason. And so I always dreamed of being an attorney, but it was always a dream. It was never a goal because, I, you know, you, when you're young and stupid, you don't really know the difference between the two. And then I discovered, you know, you, you can reach your dreams, but you have to have set goals. You have to work towards them. Being from a real small town, a farming town, I mean, there's only 24 people in my class. Four of us went to college And then, um, you know, I decided I wanted to go to law school, but I worked all the time. I graduated in three years, so I I had to get a master's degree so I could go to law school. Went to law school, did very well. Uh, Went to work for a law firm, a large law firm in Dallas that had a satellite office in Tyler. And I went to Tyler and learned to practice law with one of the best trial attorneys in the state at the time. In my opinion, we had a, a very good trial team. We represented doctors and hospitals when they got sued. We were on court TV. I got interested in doing appellate law. I argued a lot of cases for that office, argued uh, cases before the Supreme Court, Texas, and the Court of Criminal Appeals very early in my career. Uh, and um, and that's just really continued on. Uh, there was a bondsman who had 45 default judgments. And some, he asked somebody, "How? who do you hire to try to set aside default judgment. And they said, well, you need an appellate attorney. And so uh, they uh, hired, called and hired me. And as a result of that, uh, the word of mouth, I, my practice grew and I now represent uh, a lot of bondsmen in the state of Texas and several insurance companies statewide. And I found that this industry is has similar values and to the small town uh, where I grew up. And we just, kind of hit it off. Uh, I'm, I'm on the board of their state organization. Uh, uh, I, I'm on their legislative team and we uh, go to the legislature to address uh, bail issues. We present bills for the legislature to carry. We give insight on proposed bills. And it's been a, a, a very good uh, adventure. Uh, and I've made a lot of friends in the industry uh, of, of these mom and pop small businesses across the state.
0: So so you mentioned uh, shared values between the town you grew up and in the, in the bail industry. What, what would be some of those shared values?
1: I think, you know, if you think, I mean, I'm a very much a Mayberry RFD kind of guy. I mean, you know, the uh, right and wrong. We and I, But I would say it differently also. I'd say, you know, if, there was a time in this country where we all had a shared set of values of what pulled us together. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is still true. For you know the small towns and also the bonding community, I think that's what we share. Still, uh, they're very law enforcement oriented. They're also uh, uh, pro uh, small businesses and uh, you know uh, anti-regulations. And so these are very uh, a lot of times I think they're uh, uh, just small town pro business, uh, pro law and order, and probably you know uh, somewhat conservative people.
0: Yeah, it's 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 interesting, um, and especially now with uh, with coronavirus and with a lot of people being released from jails across the country. And I want to ask you, I guess, first with being in Texas, and I, I don't think Texas has had as much of a uh, coronavirus impact as a lot of other states, especially in the in the Northeast. I'm up in Pennsylvania, so uh, we've. I think so. Maybe I'm wrong. I think we've had more of a more of an impact. Um, I'm not sure if it's been equal um, impacts to people being released from jails. But what sort of uh, changes have you seen uh, in Texas regarding uh, regarding bail? And um, have a lot of people been released? Are are the jails empty? What What are you seeing down there?
1: Well, we do have one hot spot, and that is uh, Harris County in Houston. Uh, it's been a hot spot of, of the coronavirus. And it's also been a hot spot for fighting over what to do with people in the jail. Uh, you know, uh, Harris County had some litigation resolving uh, on that issue and they did a settlement, which was uh, uh very uh, left of center in its intention. And since it was a settlement, it went further than ever anything the court could ever order them to do. And so when it came time or when the coronavirus first arose, the, um, uh, They they filed a motion uh, in that litigation to order the county to uh, release half the people in the jail. And the jail carries 8,000 people. The county didn't even oppose the motion. And so the governor and the attorney general intervened and said, since they won't uh, defend Texas law, allow us to intervene to do so. And so even though the county did not even oppose it, the governor and the and the uh, attorney general stepped in and opposed it, and the motion was denied. Uh, we've seen a lot of release. I mean, I, I like to call this period we're seeing uh, uh, bail reform on steroids. We're seeing, you know, all the what would be the impact on society and on, on our legal system if we tried these things that our friends on the other side keep saying we should be doing. And so the coronavirus has seen us, given us a fast forward look into the future of what would happen if we did these things, and it's not been a pretty picture.
0: So, when you say it's not been a pretty picture, are, are you seeing the, um, people who have been released from 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 from, uh, from jails? Or are they committing crimes, or what types of things are you seeing?
1: Well, you know, we are seeing a, a lot of uh, well. There's some articles saying that 25% of them are committing more crimes. Uh, We're seeing, what we're seeing is, you know, I would describe it as, are we trying criminal justice reform or are we just doing surrender of criminal justice reform? I mean, we can't just take away all accountability and call that reform, which is what we're seeing. You know, you get arrested and then you get released and then you get arrested again in a couple of days and you get released and then you get arrested again. I mean, we started... We started keeping track. I mean, we have a blog and we started keeping track. We started keeping records. So the first record was somebody was arrested or committed a new crime within 37 minutes of being released. And then we had a new record when someone was committing a new crime within 10 minutes of being released. And you would say it's funny, but it's not because, like, on the 10 minutes it's in the parking lot of the jail. The guy's demanding keys to a to carjack a car, and when the mother says no, he starts strangling her ten or eleven year old child until she turns over the keys. So these well, are these are
0: these are violent crimes.
1: Well I mean. they they are these are career criminals. I mean, career criminals get arrested for minor things as well. I mean, we've got one guy who's, you know, got a do- over a dozen arrests or charges in the last year. When the problem we're doing is we're making mass decisions without any accountability. So someone that's got a lot of uh, arrests in their past gets arrested on a minor charge, and we don't care. We don't care about their past. We don't care about public safety. We just release them. And so we've removed all accountability from the decision-making of whether to release them, and then if they get released and are rearrested, we don't even apply accountability at that point. And the sad thing is, That is the reforms that our friends are asking us to uh, adopt and apply in the future. Hey, everybody, taking
0: a quick break here from the show, wanted to remind you all to check out uh, my man, Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, and his new song, Free Ross. If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode, Felony Friday, episode 230. Interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song, uh, Free Ross. It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of Free and Ross Ulbricht, but overall for... Changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards freeing Ross Ulbricht. So please check it
1: out. These are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes, and they sever your ties from your business ones and family why. New slave but they barely pay you. Don't care about work ethic or major.
0: But when you say the reforms that your friends are asking, are you talking about people on the left? And yes. are you are you referring to cause like when it comes to me with, with bail reform, uh, you know, I, I look at it as almost it's probably more than two categories, but just to, for the purpose of talking about starting the conversation, lumping into not violent and nonviolent criminals. Um, I, I'm much more inclined, especially with a coronavirus pandemic, to allow those who've committed committed nonviolent crimes, drug offenses, fraud, things like that, um, to to get out of jail and 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 not be stuck waiting in a prison. Um, someone who has committed rape or, you know, something like that, I would be much more inclined to keep them in, in jail. Um, even during a coronavirus pandemic.
1: What well, you- I, I, I would add a layer onto that. We should be looking at their criminal histories and, you know, someone who doesn't have a criminal history or has something in distant in the past. And, um, we want to give them a shot um, because they say, uh, well, we can't, afford the, we can't afford what the bail you said at, and so they don't have a criminal history or they don't have a substantial criminal history. I think that's one category. The problem that we have, and, and to, to directly address your issue, is even on the people who don't have a, a nonviolent crimes, is how are we going to get them to court when this godforsaken pandemic is finally over with? I mean, we're going to have huge backlogs of cases, and the studies show, and just the real life experiences in Harris County show that you have a four hundred percent better chance of someone showing, someone showing up for court if they're on a surety bond. I mean, mm-hmm. that has a real impact on them and on their case. I mean, they start learning, "Hey, we can miss, and there's no accountability." So, so can you we explain? Can, start can, can, crime.
0: You, can you quickly explain how that works with a surety sure. bond? With if somebody doesn't show up for for a court date?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, on a, on a you're arrested, the court sets bail. Now, you can, in Texas, you can post cash, you can post a surety bond, or you can request a PR bond, which is a release upon your promise that you will come back. There's no surety. And so uh, you post a bond, and then you get notification, you have a court date. Your bond is saying you're getting released from jail, and you will go to court anytime requested, on any notice. Uh, it's called instanter in Texas. And so you're requested to go for a hearing. You're required in Texas, except in Harris County under the settlement, that you have to go to court any time there's a hearing. If And if you don't show up, then your bond is forfeited. That, every time the bond is forfeited or every time you don't show up for court, there does great damage to the criminal justice system because we have to give three days notice of a hearing. And then if you don't show up, the case has to be put on hold. We can't do the hearing without you. And so your case is put on hold until you come back. Now, if you've got a surety bond, we're calling to remind you to go to court. We're, we're sending you texts to go to court. And if you don't show up for court, we're going to call you within a very short period of time, or we're going to start trying to locate you to say, hey. And what we give to the system is the assurance. These people know us. They trust us when we say, hey, you screwed up. Your case will most likely just get, if you get back within a few days, we can get your case back on track. You'll get a new hearing and that'll be the end of it. But people who don't have a surety bond, they get scared. They, they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know the system and, or they don't trust the system. And so they are hiding. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes they come back on their own, but a lot of times they come back because they commit a new crime and their case is on hold until they come back. Uh, under Texas, we can file new charges for against them for failing to for failing to appear. Each time you miss mm-hmm. court, it could be a new criminal charge. But most counties in the state don't do that. They don't file charges for you failing to appear. We just don't have time.
0: So what do you envision coming out of this coronavirus pandemic um, and they start to, to reschedule these court cases? What, what do you think is going to happen?
1: I think we're going to have a massive no we're gonna have chaos first of all and in these jurisdictions where they just release people first of all you're going to set hearings and uh, i would say at least 50 percent. that's what the stats out of harris county say so it'll be higher because of the just the chaos and uh defendants uh as time goes by defendants are nomads so if they've moved then you know the courts haven't been updated on where they're living where they're just, where they're where to send the notice so it's going to be mass chaos on getting people to show up for court and and um, if I was you know there's a there's an article on our blog that we just posted or reposted a story about a judge who you know she just did a you know something in her courtroom for so I'm just gonna try PR bonds for a while and for every eight weeks of just PR bonds she created a whole new week's worth of work for herself and so I think the lesson is, when you start getting courts and start uh, getting people back, I would get them in and I would set a bond and say, can you afford a surety bond? If you can, you need to get one because that's your best way to get people back to court. And if they can't, then give them a trial of coming back. But if they miss court and then they come back and then they, you have to get them back through an arrest, I mean, at some point, if you're just not going to have any accountability, then they know they control the system. You only have criminal justice through a voluntary process of people agreeing to show up. So at some point you're going to have to say you didn't show up four times, so you don't get another PR bond, and if you can't do a surety bond, you just sit in jail. And that's If we don't do that, then these cases will never get resolved because they'll learn very quickly that there's no consequences if they don't show up, and so they control the system instead of we do.
0: So so when you say there's no consequences if they don't show up, um, I mean, does this – does that differ based on the the level of the crime
1: um, well you know that's a a very interesting question because I, I we're we're starting to see jurisdictions play games with the category of the crime look in California, they downgrade a bunch of felonies and made them misdemeanors and now they're saying oh we've had a lot of uh we've have a lot less felony crime uh, and then you see where they'll say well we're only doing this with um uh, non-dangerous crimes. We're only doing this with, uh, you know, low-level crimes. And the problem is it it never stops there because we've been having criminal justice reform for a while. We don't hold those people in the jails now. I mean, if you looked in Harris County for the 8,000 people in jail, there's less than 3% that are misdemeanors. And that was in the federal case that was just uh, where they looked at it. And the 3% that are misdemeanors are not just sitting there. That's the group that are getting arrested, released, arrested, released, arrested, released as they were cycling through the jail. And so, I, I you know, we already have gone past those points. You see all these statistics saying, you know, this harms a family for, for them to be away and not at work. Those people aren't in jail anymore. We're talking about uh, people who have criminal histories. They're just laughing at us. There's the situation from New York where a guy was arrested 130-something times at one point, it's much more now, and he was laughing and saying, "Thanks, Democrats, for bail reform. Uh, it's it's all it's lit." And that was before uh, New York rolled back their bail reform, even during the pandemic, because it was just such a fiasco.
0: So, speaking of uh, bail reform, I mean, there has been a national movement um, prior, you know, prior to coronavirus and all this, for for bail reform, um, and something that I am not familiar with, but. There, uh, there's a, a risk assessment. A use of a risk risk assessment um, in order to, I guess, facilitate um, bail. In order to, uh, maybe you can explain to me how these risk assessments are used to determine. Um, is it to determine if someone gets bail or not, or what's what are these risk assessments are using? Well,
1: you know, risk assessment can be used in two ways. It can be, you know, meant to take the place of the surety bondsman or it can just be additional information. I think New Jersey is the example. And maybe, you know, New York, is I mean, California's uh, having a repeal election in November, but their reform was based upon kind of the New Jersey model. And under the New Jersey model, you have a constitutional amendment. You uh, can, uh, if someone is considered a risk under the risk assessment tool, then you can just detain them. And if they're uh, low risk, you just release them. And then in between, in, Anything in between, the judge has certain discretions on what he could do. The problem with the risk assessments is, you know, our our friends, and when I say our friends, I'm talking about the people on the uh, the left side advocating for a lot of these reforms. Uh, they came out with these probably five or six, maybe seven years ago. Something they developed as the panacea, a uh, panacea, panacea, panacea. Pan, panacea, I think. Yeah, panacea to replace bondsmen you know, it was the thing that was going to fix the system. And the problem with that was they didn't really do a lot of studies on it or peer review research. That's now been done, and they have all come to the same conclusion that risk assessments should not be used, should not be used as a part of Bell uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, uh, A group of the largest um, uh, digital companies in the world came together and did a uh, a joint statement saying that they were rushed, they were not mm-hmm. properly researched. Uh, they are pretty accurate on addressing what group behavior is, but they're terrible on addressing what an individual might do yeah and as a result since they their prediction is based on what a group does, they use group dynamics, group group profiles and so there's a large racial component and mm-hmm. so they've been rejected. all the groups on the left, I think but maybe one, that were advocating for the use of risk assessments have now changed their mind and now say they were wrong, and even you know the uh, Vera Institute, which supported their use in uh, New Jersey, now says they consider New Jersey an example of failed bail reform, and and that goes to the very cornerstone of what are the what bail reform should look like because that was what they were proposing. They've been I mean the Vera Institute changed course. February, the month before the pandemic. And so what are they offering now? And you can see in the coronavirus what their proposal is now. We just release everybody. And that's what they've been doing in uh, Houston for the last year for misdemeanors, low-level crimes as you might call them. And it has just been a fiasco. New York tried that since January 1, just released quote-unquote low-level risk people. And it was a fiasco, so much of a fiasco that during the middle of the pandemic, the uh, uh, New York legislature rolled back many of those reforms. Just releasing people from jail, even if we call it low level, without taking anything else into consideration and not giving discretion or direction to the trial courts leads to chaos. And I think that's been pretty conclusively shown, but our friends still advocate that the the bail reform of the future is just to release people.
0: You know, uh, the, the risk assessment is interesting to me because I, I do risk analysis on uh, you know projects like infrastructure projects, things of that nature for for a living. And I think you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I could kind of just, I could track with you. I was nodding my head as we were talking there about it because it makes total sense to me. Um, obviously, it's going to go towards these you know, taking de- data from these, you know, large demographics and, and making decisions uh, based on individuals using this data when individuals are going to act you know, very, very differently in, in many cases. Um, you just can't, you can't predict an individual's behavior. You can't predict human action. There's so many different factors that go into it. Well, if um, you look
1: at me, I'm a great example. I mean, I grew up in a small town, 24 people in my high school class, only four went to college. The risk a risk assessment on that would say I had zero chance of going to college, or I had a 25% chance of going to college. I had a zero percent chance of going to graduate school. I had a zero percent chance of going to law school, or doing you know even, you know. So what are the chances according to some kind of risk assessment of me arguing a case at the Supreme Court of Texas, or winning a case, or arguing and winning two cases at the Court of Criminal Appeals? The, the, the risk assessment would have said zero, 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 and it would have been wrong every time on me mm-hmm. because you can't, you can't, the un, the intangibles on an individual cannot be predicted predicted by a risk assessment.
0: Yeah, and another interesting aspect, and I don't want to make this a left-right thing, but I, I think it's 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 out there someone to say it, but you would think people from the left would see the threat of this being potentially this risk assessment on individuals. Um, uh, invading, uh, civil liberties and, and privacy concerns. Cause I mean, you could get to the point where you're looking at an ind- individual's social media behavior, their posts, what, what are they saying online, you know, the, and looking at d- different actions in their personal life to eventually come into that, that risk assessment. Well, um, and I
1: think that's what they've done because, uh, you know, when they, uh, like in New Jersey, when they say the risk assessment is now, we consider a failure, they don't consider it a failure because of the way it impacted the jail population it's because the way they impacted the, the percentages of the jail population. They, the percentages of the racial groups in the jail in New Jersey are the same after the reforms as they were before the reforms. And that's why they consider it a failure, because they want it to be a more equitable system. And, and, and since the racial makeup is the same they consider it now fail. So that's their goal. And that should, they remove all accountability and they, or they don't want accountability to be a part. You know, one of the big fights on the risk assessments was, well, you know, we're predicting their risk of committing another crime, but we don't want to take into consideration how many times they've been arrested. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like that would be something important to take into consideration if we're going to uh, determine their risk of of whether they're going to commit another crime while they're released. And, and they didn't want to do that.
0: So so when it comes to implementing some of these uh, bail reform measures and, you know, these changes that really do have an impact on public safety, who who ultimately makes, when you talk about, like, when you get down to the, the local level, are they making these decisions on, on a county level? Is it is it district attorneys who make these deci- Who's making these decisions?
1: Uh, I think it depends on where you're, you're at. Uh, so, uh, you know, the people who have a say in criminal justice, the sheriff, the sheriff is over the jail. The judges, misdemeanor judges would be county court judges in Texas. Felony judges would be district court judges in Texas. You have the county commissioners because they have to pay for it. Uh, and then uh, that's the local level. But for the state to have changes like, um, you know, I would say the focus in Texas on bail reform would be at the Texas legislature, which meets every two years. But since the legislature is not doing what uh, our friends on the other side want, they're trying to pick us off or pick off the state one county at a time. So they they sued Harris County. Um, they're threatening to sue Bear County. They sued Dallas County. They sued Galveston County. Um, and, and so it's, it's kind of, by, they're, they're making demands saying our way or the highway. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I keep saying, are we going to do reform or are we going to just surrender? Because it's, it's kind of like they're saying, do it our way or we're going to sue you. And I think the governor and the attorney general have shown if you just stand up to these people, um, you're, you will win. But the problem is the counties don't want to spend a bunch of money. I mean, Harris County spent $8 million defending the case. They were winning, but then there was an election, and all the judges were changed uh, on their party affiliation with new judges who promised to settle. And so now they've settled with a left, you know, left um, proposal and have agreed to spend a hundred million dollars as a down payment. I mean, it would have been much better to spend another eight million to win the case than what they're doing. Uh, I mean, they've agreed to do such. Silly things is they're going to do a study, and if the study says, "Well, people don't show up for court because they don't have a ride," well, the county's agreed to start giving them free rides, free telephones, free daycare. I mean, that's when I start saying we've removed accountability. It's nobody's fault. It's just it's. I mean, we're just surrendering. Well, at, at that point,
0: I mean, we, we talk about public safety issues with regards to this. Then it becomes a uh, you know public financial issue. All the all the tax dollars being being drained into into that.
1: Well, and you're going to see more of that as the impact of the COVID-19 comes um, more to light. I mean, look in California. They've voted for a a criminal justice reform that essentially gets rid of the private surety bail and adopts a, a New Jersey model. It's now on hold waiting for an election. And the problem is during the period between when they enacted it and the election, all this stuff came out and now says risk assessment shouldn't be used. No one says they should. Uh, no study says they should. All the studies consistently say you should not. And we have on top of that a $54 billion shortfall in California and they hadn't even funded these reforms. And so we're going to have that across the state. I mean, but but our friends on the other side are hoping to use that as well. They're wanting to go to these counties and these states and say, look how much money you, you saved from people in the jail during the COVID-19 crisis. By just releasing people, you should continue those policies. And, and and we're like, I'm like, you know, we could find common ground. There's common ground between the two sides, but the common ground has to be based upon adding uh, accountability. They can't add accountability because we've already released the first-time offenders years ago in reform. If we if we uh, add accountability in looking at cr- uh, their criminal histories. Well, then the reforms that they're seeking for really can't be done because uh, we're we're in the process of having a criminal justice crisis with with public safety because uh, of the proposals they've made have taken accountability out of the system and account, accountability has to be put back in. The reforms that they're suggesting, what's going on in Harris County, cannot continue. It will. I mean, the backlogs of cases before the crisis of the virus had already jumped 100% in a year. They can't do that every year. They're already going to jump another 100% because of the virus. That will cause the criminal justice system to shut down. And so it can't continue. So the changes that they're, they've made in Harris County will not continue very long uh, because the public won't stand for them. And I think the COVID-19 has just put it all on steroids and put it on display. And it, it's been very ugly.
0: So, with regards to the backlog in cases, like roughly and maybe maybe you don 't know this because we 're just coming into this period, but you know when the courts are ramping back up, how long are, are people going to be waiting uh, for their court date
1: oh that's I mean we have no idea yeah. I mean you know what they 're doing in Harris County already because we've seen some articles about it, is they're discounting punishments to give criminals and ins- uh, defendants incentive to plead guilty, so uh, they 'll give out deferred adjudication like candy. Deferred adjudication says you plead guilty. You're on deferred probation, which means if you don't commit another crime during a period of time, then the first case is dismissed and it's not even on your record. We're giving those out for people with guns, people shooting people, but they didn't die. And the problem with that is we've had a couple of examples where there was a violation and they're just so busy They don't have time and they don't file a motion to revoke their probation or to adjudicate their guilt. And then their probation ends. Well, then they end up killing somebody. That's one of the examples that's been in the news. And so here's somebody who would have been in prison if they had done their job, but because they're giving out these things like candy, they can't monitor them uh, that public safety has taken a severe hit uh, and there's a death that would not have happened if the criminal justice system wasn't in chaos.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that kind of goes back to, I mean, in the United States by far, we have the most incarcerated individuals. You look at every level, locally, state, federal, um, in in the entire world. And, you know, especially with what's going on in the country right now, um, there's so much division around uh, the criminal justice system policing and the one thing that I come back to is just, you know, maybe we have too many laws, and we're not focusing on the right areas. We're not focusing our energy, our policing, on the on the most violent crimes. We're distracted in, in nonviolent areas, and uh, not only is that, you know, having an impact in the lives of those individuals, a negative impact, but it's allowing the violent individuals to uh, to skate by and. A lot of the times our prisons are overcrowded because we're bringing in all these nonviolent offenders and there's not enough room. uh, So they're letting some of these violent offenders walk earlier.
1: I agree. We're not doing any uh, analysis of an individual. We're doing group decisions. So we have to let a group of people out of jail instead of looking at a case by case basis. Has he shown that he has the capability or has she shown that she has changed her ways? We're not seeing that. And I, I think we would have a lot of uh, middle ground with our friends on the left if about uh, just doing a top-down review of what we have as crime, because I agree with you that's a problem because it's masking the bigger issue. Because, but 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 the other problem is you don't go to jail on a first offense anymore. You, you're now it's getting to the point now where you don't go to jail on multiple offenses. I mean, we had somebody that was killed. A month or so ago, uh, it was, yeah, during the COVID crisis in Houston. And the person who killed this 80 year old grandma who was in a parking lot at Walgreens had been arrested over 30 something times. He'd been charged over 30 something times. He was out on two uh, felony PR bonds at the time. I mean, so we're, I mean, when I say we're taking accountability out of the system, we don't have the time to, give out that, you know, to give that, let's look at your case. Let's see what your situation is. And I think our friends do not realize that the, that this, that the situation they're creating by making group decisions is we don't have time. The the magistrates, the judges don't have time to devote to each individual case to determine uh, where where they are. And Mm -hmm. I think that is a grave mistake of our friends. And I think it will have a big backlash on them and we should be looking for ways to divert people who can f- pay for their own supervision out of, the si- uh, out of the jail as quickly as possible. Because the problem is, how do you process large groups of people through the jail quickly and efficiently? And under their reforms, you do it by just releasing everybody, which causes a public safety issue. A better way, which historically been, has been done, is to have a bail schedule, the people that can afford to pay for their own supervision with the private system, Private surety system, post their bond, they get they get processed through the jail quickly, and then the courts, the magistrates can focus their limited time on who's left to determine uh, what's your situation, how do we get you back on track, and what are the system our friends are, are are advocating for removes all that, and you don't have time, so you got to make group decisions, and that's what's killing us right now.
0: That makes sense. So Ken I want to thank you first of all for for your time and uh, very very educational and uh, you know I've, I've learned a lot just from talking with you today, but before I let you go, just want to give you uh, some time to uh, to plug you know any, any, anywhere you want to direct people to a website or any of your content
1: well thank you very much uh, for anyone who would like to have additional information about uh, our situation in Texas and bell reform in general, you can go to uh, the website for the professional bondsman of texas pbtx.com you can go to our blog uh as well and you can see us on our facebook and on twitter um and there's links to all those on the website
0: all right ken well thank you so much for your time today i appreciate it
1: thank you very much i i very much uh enjoyed talking to you It was a great conversation
0: thank you for listening to today's show another great episode of felony friday as you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest-running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, And just just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing for the great price of $0 per month. You get everything that we have here. So please check everything out. And uh, if you like it all, please think about consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash lines of Liberty. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Lions of Liberty. And the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to to talk about politics, liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the Lions of Liberty forum on Facebook which you can find by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook, clicking search, comes up, say you want to join it, answer a question, bam, you're in, and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you. So check that out. That's all I have for today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of Liberty Burnin'.